I don't know if you've ever been lost before. I know men don't admit that that's ever happened in their life, that they've gotten lost. They're just taking a different direction than what they normally have to get to a location. But uh, I can think of several occasions of being lost, uh, going mountain climbing in New Hampshire and getting lost and, and uh, having to retrace steps and go back. But I don't think any of us uh, were as extreme as uh, Sabine Maru. Sabine uh, was uh, going to pick up a friend. She lived in Brussels, or not in Brussels, she lived in Belgium, and she was going to go to Brussels to pick up a friend. And was coming in, and for her, that was going to be a trip of about 90 miles, and she was going to go pick up her friend and uh, go back. Well, this is back in 2013, and this is when GPSs were just really starting out to really be a thing that people were using all the time. And so she typed in her destination. And instead of, uh, for this 67-year-old woman, instead of uh, going west to Brussels, she proceeded to go east. She ended up going through Germany. She started seeing names like Aachen and Frankfurt and places like that, but the GPS was telling her where to go, so she just kind of continued to follow that, and then she got to a point where she was having to make a few pit stops in the sense of uh, going to the gas station or stopping at a restroom and getting something to eat. And she was getting tired too, so every once in a while she would stop and, and take a nap alongside the road there and, and uh, do that. It wasn't until she got to Zagreb, Croatia, that she realized she might be going in the wrong direction. Now, her statement uh, was this, I was distracted, so I kept going. Now, this was rather interesting because this trip took her several days just to get there to Zagreb, Croatia, uh, and the like. But in that process of time, her friend who had arrived in Brussels was like, she's not here so she got a ride to the house where they were at by the time this lady gets there and goes well where's your your mom the son's like i don't know she was going to pick you up and they had to send out a police uh a police statement to her but yeah she finally realized that she was not on track and she said when i passed zagreb i told myself i should turn around You have a story like that in Genesis 34. Somebody is not quite where they need to be at. They've missed it by some distance. This is the life of Jacob, and we read last week where it seems like he successfully has gotten back to the land of promise. He has uh, successfully gotten past Laban and Esau. He's built uh, booths uh, for his animals, barns, as we would say, uh, for his animal and livestock. He's moved to the city of Shechem. He sets up an altar there to praise God, and you think everything is good, but it's not because he's not where he's supposed to be at he's back in the land of promise but he's not where he's supposed to be at now what we're going to get as far as this passage and reading through it is as pastor brian said it's not one of the more pleasant passages of scripture for multiple reasons and we'll look at it 
But what this passage is driving at and is helping us to understand is just simply this. When we're not where we should be, God calls us to come back to Him. Okay, when we're not where we're supposed to be, God calls us back to where we should be, which is with Him, where He's at, doing His things. When you look at this outline, I mean, it's just two points. What you have throughout the whole of chapter 34 is just simply this, not where we should be. What Jacob shows and displays, like chapter 27, where the wives are competing and fighting with each other and naming their names and all of that, chapter 27 is a disaster. So it is like this. This is a chapter where everyone in the chapter is wrong some way shape or form they aren't even close to where they should be at they're wrong but one thing you may have not noticed where just starting off and not where we should be is just simply looking at chapter 34 you can read it and read it over again and try and reread it and you'll find this that there's an absence of god start in verse one read down to the end not a single mention of god this isn't by accident i mean this omission highlights the very seedy nature of the present chapter god's not a part of it god's ignored god's not there i mean the omission of god in this episode is an intentional gap not an unintentional blank had jacob pushed on his vow to fulfill his vow at bethel and build his altar there instead of buying land and building an altar at Shechem, this tragedy would not have happened. And this is something where God's absent from God's people, God's absent from the world, uh, it doesn't matter, but the whole chapter, there's an absence of God. And you go, okay, what happens when there's an absence of God? A chapter like this. The things that go on here. It's how life works when people subtract God. God is not in their thoughts. God's not a part of their life. These type of things become regular, become the norm, sadly, for people's lives when there's an absence of God. And so right from the start of not where we should be, you see an absence of God. But there is a failure to keep a vow. That's the first thing that goes wrong here. Jacob, when he, in verse 18 and 19 of the previous chapter, stops in Shechem. It looks good there because he builds an altar. And you see in uh, verse 8 or 20, he says this, I'm going to call this altar El Elohi Israel. God, the God of Israel. This is my God I'm setting an altar up to. He sets it up outside the city of Shechem. But in reading the story of Genesis, if you were just reading this story through, just the whole thing, not as we've broken it up because we have to get it in bite-sized chunks for a sermon, but if you were reading through this, you would remember, wait a second, Jacob was supposed to go back to a certain location, a specific location. When you read in the story in Genesis chapter 28 of the story of what we call Jacob's ladder, Jacob's staircase... What he makes uh, is this, is that he is a, gives a vow in verse number 20 of chapter 28. And Jacob said this, he vowed a vow. He made a promise to God. 
Not a light thing to make a vow, but especially to God to make a promise. He makes this promise. If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then shall the Lord be my God. And this stone, which I have set for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give a tenth unto thee. What he is promising, he's coming back to this place the house of God, where he met God, where God sent him off and said, I will bring you back to this place. Jacob vows that he'll do that and he'll give a tenth to the Lord and come back to that place. But he's about, as you read the story in chapter uh, 34, going back to that, he's 20 miles away. He didn't make it to where he was supposed to be at. Uh, And when you read the story, even the author kind of hints at the fact that he's not where he needs to be at because when he sets up outside of Shechem, it's almost like this, that he's outside of Shechem but not quite in it. He's outside pitching his tent towards Shechem. Almost the idea there. It's got echoes of Lot in Genesis chapter 13 who when he moved to the land and moved next to Sodom, he pitched his tent towards Shechem. Sodom, there's kind of a feeling that he might be heading towards this to have an affinity with the people that are in that uh, city. So it is with Jacob. He pitches next to this town that he really shouldn't be nearby. And so you have a failure to keep a vow. That's one of the things that doesn't go right here. But you have in the story also one who goes out to see the world. This is a very dangerous thing. This is not a normal thing that you find in verse 1 when Dinah, the daughter of Leah, uh, which she bare to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. This is not just merely that she's going and saying, well, what's it like out there? No, she's going out by the terminology there to experience life with these people. Just kind of see what's going on there. Uh, How do they live their life? And in that culture, this would have been unheard of. One made uh, this statement, uh, girls of a marriageable age would not normally leave a rural encampment to go unchaperoned into an alien foreign city. But that's what she does. She goes to the city of Shechem and she kind of hangs out with the people that are there, the ungodly. You say, what do you mean by ungodly? They just don't know God. And she's going, well, how do they live their life? I want to find this out. And she wants to experience life like this. And so just from that standpoint, you're going, how in the world does Dinah get out to go and wander around like this and go and say, I'm going to find out what the world's like? It's always a dangerous thing. Now, this seems to be the problem of youth, though it can be the problem of old age and middle age too. But what's the world like? I've got to go and experience this. I've got to find out what it's like uh, to live without God. They seem to be having a grand time. Maybe I'm missing out on something. And Dinah gets herself in the middle of a situation like this. And only bad things come out of it. What you see in this uh, passage where people aren't where they're supposed to be at, you see violent desires. This is on the part of uh, the city uh, that is there and this one by the name of Shechem who sees Dinah attracted to her, violently attacks her and rapes her. 
I mean, the passage here is just, it's not, there's nothing good out of this. He's a violent man in trying to obtain her. It's like what you find in Genesis 6 and verse 2, where you have the, uh, the sons of God uh, with the daughters of men, uh, these individuals forcibly taking individuals. That's what he is. This is. There's nothing good about what happens here. It's a violent assault. Nothing good about it. And so you have violent desires where this man by the name of Shechem, his father Hamor, uh, these individuals are okay with what's gone on here. In fact, they seemingly condone it because afterwards he goes, I would love to marry her. Really? You violently attacked her and now you love her and you want to marry her. That's just kind of a really warped uh, sense of values. But that's what this young man thinks after this, that it'd be okay for him. So you have violent desires being expressed where there is no God. You have a passive parent. You know, where do you see that? Well, when this report comes back in verse number 5 that his daughter has been assaulted, it says this, that Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah his daughter, now his sons were with his cattle in the field, and Jacob held his peace until they were come. He doesn't say anything doesn't do anything doesn't go to the city fathers that are there and go listen this should never have happened back in that culture this type of thing would have been a death penalty in some cultures restitution would have been made to the father uh, because of this type of thing jacob does nothing you're going, he should be doing something. Yes, there should be a righteous response to this. There should be some movement. But there's none of this. It's passive parenting. Just let go on, go on. Don't do anything about it. Don't stir anything up. He's passive. Does nothing in response. Which is in direct contrast to the deceptive sons. See, when the sons come in, specifically Simeon and Levi, and we go, why those two? Well, they were the direct brothers of Dinah. They had the mother of Leah, and their father was Jacob. They had that family connection on this side, so it seems that they're even moved more by this than the other brothers are. But when they come back, in verse number 7, the sons of Jacob came out of the field. When they heard it, they were grieved. I mean, you don't have that statement from Jacob. But these boys are grieved, and they were very wroth. That's what you would expect Jacob to have done. No, Jacob doesn't. So their response is right. Something right has not gone on here. And in their sense, there is justice that needs to take place. And they are mad because he had, talking about Shechem, had wrought folly in Israel and lying with Jacob's daughter. Which thing ought not to be done? They're right and accurate on that. But what they are are deceptive sons. They at least have initially right motives, but they go about accomplishing their purposes through deceit, and then they just go out of their way. You say, what's the deceit process? Well, they kind of are the ones who are leading out in the bargaining. 
Shechem comes with Hamar, his father, and goes, we want to marry Dinah. And they go, okay, that's fine. But what you need to do is you need to become like our family. We've all gone through the ceremony of circumcision. For you to be a part of our people, you have to go through that process. And you have to do that. And then we'll, we'll be okay with you. We'll be willing to marry your daughters and uh, you can marry our daughters and, and we'll be okay with this. But you have to go through this process. And you go, what were they thinking here? They were already manipulating and figuring out how they could get their revenge and they were going to do it this way. I mean, they are deceptive sons because they don't intend ever to give their sons to the daughters of the city, nor are they planning on taking the daughters of the city. They are just out for vengeance but they're deceptive. And you go, where did they learn that from? A father whose name had changed, but they had spent 15 years, 20 years, 22 years at this point watching dad manipulate circumstances and do this. And so they're just exemplifying what dad has done throughout the years. And what you see is this, that they have excessive violent retaliation I mean, restitution should have been expected. The life of Shechem probably should have been taken for uh, doing this. But what they proceed to do is that these individuals, after they had gone through, all the men had gone through the process of circumcision and uh, three days later uh, still recovering from that, they come into the city and not just slaughter uh, Shechem, which they might have had a right to do under the laws that were there, they proceed to kill every single male in that town. You say that's excessive restitution, retaliation. It is by any standard. Those other individuals had nothing to do with that situation. They didn't have uh, the, the, the crime upon their hands, but yet the brothers carry that out. And then they proceed to take everything from that town any kind of wealth, the individuals that are there, the slaves, the people that are there, they take them. You say that's excessive retaliation. They're acting just like the world. They're kind of like, you remember the story way back in Genesis where you have an individual by the name of Lamech. And Lamech brings his two wives together and gives them a wonderful piece of poetry which basically says, someone wounded me and I'm going to get back to them. They paid me sevenfold. I'm going to get them back 70-fold. I mean, that's a poem of a man who doesn't know God, who's wandering from God, and he's doing his own thing. And that's his, his chief achievement, is that final poem that he gives, that I'm going to get back what I want, and I'm going to get it excessively. These brothers here, Simeon and Levi, are just like that man. Lamech. Excessive retaliation. And you get to the end of the story here, and it is, it's amazing that Jacob finally talks. And you find this, that he's more worried about reputation than what is right. He's more worried about his reputation than what's right. You get to verse number 39 of this, or excuse me, verse 30 of this chapter. Jacob and Simeon, or comes to Simeon and Levi after they've committed this atrocity and wiped out this town and they've taken it. And he just simply says this, 
Ye have troubled me to make me a stink amongst the inhabitants of the land, amongst the Canaanites and the Perizzites. You know what? My reputation's bad now. It stinks. No one wants to be around me because of what's happened here. It's your fault. You've ruined my reputation. I being, you finish it, I being few in number, they shall gather themselves together against me and slay me, and I shall be destroyed, I and my house. And the brothers come back with a response that is, is accurate. Not because of all their violence beforehand, but they're at least accurate in this. They said this, should he deal with our sister as with an harlot, a prostitute? Should he have treated him or like that? And the answer is, no, they shouldn't have. But back early on in the story, Jacob does nothing. He says nothing. The brothers have to find out about this, not from Jacob, but from another source it sounds like. He's been silent, but when they do this, he all of a sudden responds and goes, you're ruining my reputation. But when he should have said something about what was right, what should have happened, the defense of his family, the care of his family, he said nothing. One says this, at this very difficult episode, Jacob by his silence is much too passive. At the end, when he finally opens his mouth, he betrays fear, not faith. He struggles neither with God nor with humans. He is just going... It's all about me. I've seen this happen before where uh, in working with teens over the years, you find that parents get upset with their children not because they haven't done what is right. It's because they ruined the reputation of the family for being perfect. They weren't willing to deal with the situation and go, here's what's right. So you go through all of that and you just kind of go, you know, and you wash my hands after this. And you go, what's wrong here? God's not been a part of this. He's not been a part of these people's thoughts, their actions, their activities, their life. They've just ignored him. And what you have starting in verse 1 of chapter 35 is this, is that God calls his people to come back. God calls his people to come back. He doesn't want his people to stay in this state. He doesn't want them to remain here. He wants them to come back. And what you have in verse 1, God said to Jacob, God absent, and all of a sudden he has to, he has to do the initiating, but he steps back in and says to Jacob, Arise, go to Bethel, and dwell there, and make there an altar unto God that appeared unto thee when thou fleddest from the face of Esau thy brother. It's time for you to get back to where you're supposed to be at. I mean, what I call this is just simply a heavenly reminder You know, God can do this many ways in our life. He doesn't speak verbally out loud, or said verbally, audibly out loud to us in our time frame here in New Testament times. But He can get our attention in multiple different ways. It can be through the preaching on a Sunday morning like this, where a pastor gets up and preaches on something, and you are sitting there in the pew going, I'm not anywhere where I'm supposed to be at on this. I'm not even close. 
And pastor or the pastor is working as God's heavenly reminder to you. Or it may be that you are actually at times reading through the Word of God and then suddenly you realize, I'm not where I'm supposed to be at. But many times how God gets our attention is that He puts us in circumstances beyond our control hole. I mean, you can't solve it at that point and you suddenly go, I need to go back to God. That's where he's at at this point when he gets to the end of this story. Jacob's going, I can't go anywhere. People will kill me off. I'm surrounded by people that would love to kill me now, now that I've wiped out this town. My sons have done this and my reputation's ruined. I've got no place to go. And God steps in and says, okay, here's what you need to do. You need to get back to this point. And what you see for, for Jacob is this, that there's a response and it's twofold and it's the response that we have to do. First of all, you might say this, that there is a responsibility for us to repent. In this case, remove certain things. Change our mind about certain things that we've been doing. See it for what it truly is. You go, what's been going on in Jacob's family? Well, you see this in, in verse number Two, that Jacob says to his household and to all that were with him, put away the strange gods that are among you and be clean and change your garments. Seems like the family has taken up idols. Remember that Rachel had stolen her household, uh, the household gods out of uh, her father's house. We've gone 10 years since that time frame at this point. It seems like the boys are thinking, it's okay. It's all right for us to have household gods and, and uh, have them around to kind of help us out. That's what you had those things there for, was to help you out, sort of like a lucky charm. And you would have this. And Jacob, who perhaps knew this was going on, but being the passive parent, hadn't said anything about it, finally says, we need to get rid of these things. This isn't right. We've been okay with this in our thinking for a while, but this isn't right. There is no such thing as other gods. There's only one God. We need to get rid of these idols. We need to repent. We need to remove these things. And then you say, what happened then? You have this removal of idols, a renunciation of the things before, and I would put it this way, a recommitment. A return, as you might put it. Because what Jacob does is that he goes back in verse 3, he says, Let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make there an altar unto God who answered me in the day of my distress and was with me in the way which I went. There's a God in heaven who does things. I have gotten away from him. We've gotten away from him. And we need to return to him. We need to draw nigh unto him. I was thinking about this as looking at this passage that James talks about revival. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And that's what these individuals are doing. They're, they're cleansing their hands from the sins that they've been involved in and saying that's not good. But then it tells us in that passage on revival in James 4, draw an eye to God and what? He won't seem so distant. Draw an eye to God and He will draw an eye to you. For Jacob, this is what happens. He takes his family and goes, we need to go and we need to go visit this place. You've never, you, you've never seen it before. 
I mean, remember, Jacob left and there was no one here, there with him at the, that scene. He's coming back with his whole family and he's going, there's a place there, it's got a marker, and we're going to talk through what happened to get me to that point and how God has brought me through all of this and gotten me back here. What a great God he is. You ought to serve him too. He's a good God. He's a great God. And so you see, even in all of that, as they give up, verse 4, they gave to Jacob the strange gods which in their hands, all their earrings which were in their ears. So many think that that's kind of jewelry that went along with the gods. Jacob hid them under an oak, which was by Shechem, and they journeyed. And here's the, the, the wonderful thing about this, that when they draw nigh to God, God takes care of some of those things you're afraid of. Because what God does is that the terror of God was upon the cities that were round about them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. They can move from one place to go to Bethel to be able to worship God, and God protects them, though they don't deserve it. And when they get there, verse 6, so Jacob came to Luz, which was in the land of Canaan, that is Bethel, he and all the people that were with him, and there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel. God of the, and Bethel means this, house of God. God of the house of God. I'm going to talk about him. I'm going to talk about this God who is the God of this place. Because there God appeared to him when he fled from his brother. You know, you get to this is this story and is everything perfect after this? No, it's not. Uh, but the story kind of changes over. And as we'll get to in a two weeks time, we'll get to the story of Joseph as a new uh, thing happens out here. But this story is just kind of a reminder. We're not where we need to be at. And what God sometimes has to do, we, we think we're doing well because you read the story in Genesis 33, you're thinking, oh, he's built this place and he's, he's in Shechem. He's built this altar. He's right where he's at. He's in good condition with God. He's right with God. And the answer is no, there's still work to be done. You realize that's the case for all of us. We're saved Jesus Christ has saved us. We put our faith and trust in Him, uh, that gift, but we're still being changed into His image to look like Him. As Romans 8 says, we're being conformed to the image of Christ. That's what God's trying to do for us. And so we really never have arrived. And there are going to be times where God's going to go, you're not right here. Look, look, at, look at this course of action you've done and you've kept this and the destruction that it's caused because you keep doing this over and over and over again. And God calls us to say, listen, get rid of that. Remove that. Change that into what it should be and return to me, the one who is the one who will take care of you, the one who is a true God, the one who extends grace to help. And so for us, as we look at a passage like this, we'd go, we'll never look like this. Oh, yeah, you will. You'll do some foolish things that don't even look Christian at times. And what will you have to do? Repent of it, turn from it, and return and recommit to being a follower of God and just simply saying, this is my God and I ought to look like Him and ought to be like Him and this is where I should be headed and I may fail again. 
And God may have to step in and once again say, get back to where you need to be at. And he does this in his graciousness and mercy. It's not that he's a God up there going, I want to make your life miserable. No, he's going, you are going to be miserable. I don't think anybody wants to live in that chapter, Genesis 34. And sometimes God has to step in and go, you don't want to continue to live like this. Here's what needs to change. Change your view of what you're doing here. Repent. Change your mind about that and turn to me. I don't know what the Lord may be challenging you on and maybe he's, he's had to hit you over the head this week. And you look and go, how did I get myself in this situation? It's because of my foolishness and sin. Say, so what's the, the solution? Repent, turn from that. Say, it's my sin that got me here. But if I turn to God, when I find this, if I humble myself in the sight of the Lord, He will lift me up. He'll get me out of places that I have gotten myself into. Not completely take me out of it, but will make that situation more bearable if I just come back to Him. And so for us uh, here uh, this morning, maybe it is just that we have a time of going, am I where I need to be at? This time that we're going to have here in just a minute or two with the Lord's table gives you a good time to reflect. You go, you know, am I where I'm supposed to be at? Has God been knocking on my heart through His Spirit or through the preaching or through circumstances? And He's saying, this needs to change. This thing that Jesus had to die for, the sin that I keep holding on to, does that need to be left behind, turned from? And do I just need to go back to God's grace and go, I am coming to you recognizing I've gotten myself in, into some situations by my own doing, my own sinfulness, and I'm just returning to you and saying, God, you're so gracious. I see it in the fact that you gave me your son to die in my stead but now in my life I, I should be reflecting i'm not i'm not reflecting the grace that's been given to me at the cross lord help me to more reflect that give me uh, the grace to be able to do what you would call me to do help me to have the grace to turn from sin and so a time like this allows us to reflect on those things and so don't take the time just merely going okay i'm waiting for that Bread to be handed down the aisle and the juice to be handed down the aisle and okay, is the, you know, the deacons finally up front? Okay, no, this is a time where it gives you an opportunity to do some examination. To look at yourself and go, listen, am I, am I reflecting Christ in my life or would people look at my life and go, there's no grace going on in your life. You, you look like the world. Maybe it's a time where you just go, I need to, I need to get some things right with the Lord. And a time like this is allowing us to just simply stop in our schedule and go, let's reflect on my life. Am I where I need to be at? And then, in the end, you ought to be able to just praise God because He's one who continuously extends grace over and over and over again to help us when we fail. But He delights in helping us when we come back. He's a good God, seen in the sacrifice of His Son, willing to save us and rescue us. And so let's uh, meditate on that as we get to uh, this time in a few minutes.
Lord, we thank You. Some of us have been in situations like Jacob got himself into. And we may still be in that where we've done some things and we've just gotten ourselves buried up to our neck because of the sins that we have done. Lord, may we be willing to give up sin. Give us Your grace, Your strength to be able to see our sin as the destructive thing that it is and turn from it. Repent of it. Remove certain things that are what are causing us to stumble. And Lord, give us Your strength and Your grace when we come to You and ask for help that we would see Your hand as You delight in lifting us up and helping us in the midst of our difficulties that we've sometimes created. Lord, help us to learn from the life of Jacob that You want us to return to You and delight in that. You've been doing this 4,000 years ago. You'll do the same thing now if we were to simply return to You. Repent and reclaim, recall, and and, uh, return to You that You'll be gracious. Lord, we love You. Thank You for being a merciful God. And we praise You in the name of Your Son, which shows that by His sacrifice that You do love us and want to extend us grace and mercy if we just but call. And this we praise You for in Christ's name. Amen.